Hello, my name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Press. Uh, we are continuing along in a series looking at uh, God's Word, obviously, but how God's Word will speak into this liturgy that if you've been worshiping with us, that we engage in this worship, guided by this liturgy and this conversation and this rhythm and flow that allows us to be hopefully the most biblical and also the most God-honoring and to really prioritize the themes of what a Christian life should be, namely God's grace and His sovereignty, our sin, and of forgiveness. And so today we're going to move along in this liturgy for life into the third section called means of grace. And so if you're able, I'm going to read a famous passage. I want you to stand for the reading of this word. I'm going to read from the prophet Ezekiel. And I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 37 to verse 14. And this is uh, famously known as the, the prophet or the prophecy about the valley of dry bones. And so let us receive the word of God here today. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophecy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, and as I, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord, the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophecy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And this is God's word. You could go ahead and take your seats. Well, today's message, as we look at this series entitled Liturgy of Life, will focus our attention and hopefully guide our discussion about what we like to call the means of grace. And if you've never taken a, a moment just to kind of look in detail a little bit, which I doubt maybe many of us have not, you look at the third heading of our liturgy, there's a little subheading called means of grace. And you may have asked a question to yourself or to a friend or your CG leader, an elder perhaps, <laughs> what in the world is the means of of grace. Well, if you ever ask that question, it's a good one, and I pray that all of us would have that conviction to further discover the details of our faith in, in Jesus. But today's message is exactly going to be speaking into this from Ezekiel 37. Now, at the risk of sort of losing the crowd here today, I'm going to give you a short Bible study as an introduction before we go into the two points of the message. 
and this short Bible study will come because we are a Reformed church and Reformed in theology, will come from what we call the Westminster Larger Catechism. And there are two questions that I think are questions that you may have about the means of grace, and I'm just going to read them for us and then shortly describe what the meaning of those answers are. This is what it's trying to get at in terms of really getting at what the means of grace are and what the relevance is for a modern-day people like you and me. But in the larger catechism, there's question 153, and it says this, What doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us by reason of the transgression of the law? Basically asking the question, how in the world can we go to heaven and escape the just condemnation that you and I deserve for breaking God's law and going to hell? How can we escape hell and go to heaven? What does God require of us? And the answer it gives is this, that we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of the law. We deserve this. He requires of us repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ and the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. And that last verse there is basically, well, if you summarize it, saying that we repent of our sins because we broke the commandments and the way that we can cultivate faithfulness, godliness, holiness, and escape the just wrath of God to us. The way we can escape this and cultivate a faithfulness is through the diligent use of the outward means, the means of grace. And one comment just to make about this answer is that the Reformers, although they use this sort of stale old language according to modern sensibilities, is really a pastoral heart because they're trying to pastor the church during the time of the 16th century. And they are pastorally wise because when it says the diligent use, they're saying that your salvation in Christian life cannot be collapsed in one moment, one decision, and one point in time. That really... Discipleship and salvation is a journey to follow Jesus for the rest of your life and to ensure that you really make it to the finish line. The reformers are pastorally saying that if you want to escape God's curse and wrath, you have to adhere to the diligent use of the outward means of grace because they're expanding your view of salvation in Christian life to be the long game, a journey in which you look towards the end and finish line by the diligent use of the means of grace. And you also know, if you ever study this in detail, that if you look at the footnotes, you'll see sort of the Bible passages that the Reformers used to come up with this answer. And one of the Bible passages, ironically or surprisingly, is actually coming from Proverbs, because the idea is that the Reformers are really thinking that you're seeking after salvation in the sense of way that you and I will seek after wisdom, this sort of abstract, relational navigating the grayness of life, and they're applying the way that you seek wisdom to the way that you seek the outer means of grace. And now you're thinking, what in the world are the outer means of grace by God communicates blessing and power? How can we diligent use, diligently use the outer means of grace? Well, that gives us or leads us to question of the larger catechism 154. It says this, what are the outer means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation? What are they? And the answer is this, the outward and ordinary, those are important, outward, outside of us, and ordinary, ordained by God, but in contrast to extraordinary, means by where Christ communicates to us, the church, to his church, the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. So the answer is trying to get there 
without going into too much detail, saying that the Christian life in some ways is really about the ordinary long game. Salvation in the Christian life has moments of extraordinary power, extraordinary spirit-filled, gospel-centered growth in your life and miracles, quote-unquote, that could happen through God's natural providence. But the general tenor of the Christian life is consistency, slow growth, faithfulness. That's why it says diligent use of the outward means. And it says there, the outward and ordinary it's not always going to be an extraordinary Christian life because a Christian life actually is taking the extraordinary gospel and applying it in the ordinary matters of your life. But the outward and ordinary means by which Jesus gives us his blessing, his fellowship, and unites us to himself, it says it comes to us through all ordinances. That means all things God could use. He could use providence. He could use suffering, small groups, discipleship groups, counseling. He uses all ordinances in order to communicate his blessing but it says, especially, highlighting, essentially, primarily, fundamentally, foundationally. All God will use everything that he wants by the power of his spirit. Of course he can. But especially the word, sacrament, and prayer. Those are the three things. Those are the three things that God says, especially I'm going to ordain and really empower these three things, word, sacrament, and prayer, to encourage you, to build you up, to help you to be vibrant. And so if you feel this morning that you are spiritually lethargic, not very faithful, not very excited about your Christian life, then really the question is, have you been diligently using and receiving the word sacrament and prayer? And so I want to explore to you why the word here today, we won't go into prayer or sacrament, but why the preaching of God's word is a primary, especially a way that God will use to bless you and to give you more of Jesus. Let's explore that together from this famous passage. Two simple points. First, we'll look at the bones. Secondly, we'll look at the preaching. We'll look at first the death of people through this valley of dry bones. And then we'll look at the anecdote to death, which is going to be the preaching of God's word. So let's look at this together. Now, a picture of death. You know, sort of a, a morbid picture of what this vision is for Ezekiel. But you know, they say that in our culture... That old phrase that says something to the effect, nothing is as certain as death and taxes. And that's certainly the case. When you think about death, you know, it's really, our culture is really one that tries to delay death and to retain our youthfulness and to extend our life here. Nothing, in fact, that's really inherently wrong. But death is one reality that every person faces. It levels the playing field. Death is ominously unbiased. Death has no prejudice. Death is not racist. Death is not elitist. It comes to everyone. It comes to the rich and the poor, the powerful and the oppressed, the poor and the privileged, the needy, to every race, to every culture, to every gender, throughout time, through every generation. They, in fact, say the moment that a baby is born, that baby has taken its first step towards its death. And that's actually, in some ways, largely true. And that's the picture of chapter 37. Read verse 1. It says this. The hand of the Lord was upon me. You know, God is guiding Ezekiel through this. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And he set me down in the middle of the valley in the center of death. It was full of bones. When the hand of the Lord was upon me, brought me out, is basically saying God is bringing Ezekiel and giving him a tour and leading him through a picture of death. And saying, this is what life is like without God. That's what Ezekiel's saying. This is what life is like without a vibrant relationship with Jesus. 
And in verse 2, he says this, and he led me all, he led me around among them, you know, walk through death, get a sense of it, smell it, immerse yourself in this death, and behold, now it's a strong word, look carefully, there are many on the surface of the valley, and behold, no, twice, behold, they are very dry. See, what he's trying to get at verse 2 is this, it's not just death, but verse 2 is total death, comprehensive death, death to the fullest. Because it's not just corpses that have flesh and, flesh and blood still attached, it's bones. And it's not just bones, but it's dry bones, which means that it's been baking out there in the valley for who knows how long. They've been there for a while. And it's not just one skeleton set of bones, it's probably thousands because it's an army, thousands of skeletons. No, this is the height, or rather the depth, of what death will feel like. It's death extended, the fullest extent of the power of death. And on top of that, scholars will say that it's probably the worst insult that you can make on a culture because even back in the ancient Near East, whenever you defeat an enemy army, it's still sort of honorable to take the defeated army and allow in some way the bodies to be buried. But the fact that these bodies were unburied and just left out to try shows that it wasn't just a picture of defeat, it was a picture of contempt, a picture of shaming being poured out on these slain soldiers. The shock factor is something that we're supposed to absorb. I mean, God brings out Ezekiel and says, walk around with me. Why don't we go take a for a walk? Now look over here, there's a bunch of bones. You see over there, there's a bunch of bones. Drops them right in the middle. Behold, soak it in like the sun rays of the sun. No, let it absorb you, let it bring you. He wants you to get the fullest extent in the sense and experience of what death is. In the context of this, friends, of where Ezekiel's coming from is called the exile. You know, the Israelites were in the promised land. They sinned, so they get kicked out. And if you can imagine that you lost your home, you lost your temple, you lost your God, you lost your community, you lost your ethnicity, you lost your ethnicity in the sense that now you live in a multicultural context, can't speak the language, don't understand how business works, the economy, the food, everything about your life has been flipped upside down. And you want to go back home, but then after a certain amount of years, you begin to forget. You forget what life is like back then. You forget that actually you were with your family and that you were one heart and mind worshiping the one true God. You forget all that. And after a while, you've been living in decades in this exile, what happens to your experience? Existentially, you begin to wither and you lose hope. That's the suffering. That, it, it is a picture of death. That's why verse 11 towards the end of the passage says, our bones are dried up. No, Israelites are saying that. And our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. We're cut off from God. We're cut off from our religion. We're cut off from worship. We're cut off from our culture. We're cut off from our way of life. That word cut off actually is a very theological word. It's the word for a covenant. They've been cut off from the promises that God has. And they're like, is God going to do something? There's no life, no hope, no identity, no community, no vision, no purpose in life. It's absolute death. And what Ezekiel wants you and I know here today, friends, sitting here in Orange County in the 21st century, is that in some way, spiritually speaking, if you live life apart from God, chapter 37 describes your life. See, the challenge is that it doesn't feel like that because we still live in our homes and we still maybe thrive at work and we have our friends who can go out and get a meal. But if you live that way of life apart from God, it's just a matter of time before it's going to feel like dry bones. This is a picture of you and me. 
if we live life apart from God, spiritually speaking. Sometimes, maybe even now, as Pastor David has prayed, a lot of us are suffering. A lot of you have achieved all that you want to achieve, and you still feel kind of empty in life. Some of you feel this. Some of you are disappointed because you feel like you haven't reached the goals that you set for yourself, and you feel like a failure. Family could be imploding. Marriage is really tough. Mental health is wreaking havoc on our culture, and honestly, probably in this church as well. And so even though outwardly you look like you're doing well in this Orange County life, inwardly and spiritually, you may be crying out, verse 11, I feel like dry bones. I kind of lost a sense of myself. I don't have any hope. I feel like I'm cut off from like life. I'm cut off from vibrant community. And you may feel exactly what verse 11 is saying. Now, one New Testament picture to give you a, a clearer perspective on really what verse 37 is talking about comes to us in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 3. This is Paul's more eloquent in some ways. You know, the Old Testament is a lot about visions and tries to speak powerfully through pictures. Paul tries to speak powerfully through eloquence and syntax and prose or composition. So in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, this is what Paul says. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it captures this picture more eloquently in some ways than you and I experience, because it recognizes that biologically and clinically you're living life, but you're living life in the indulgences of the flesh and the passions of the now. But how did he begin this? He says, you are dead. You are dry bones and your trespasses and sins. Now, this is a New Testament picture of the condition of man apart from Jesus. You're dead in verse 1. You're following the patterns of the world, verse 2. You're following Satan in verse 2. You're living in the idols of the flesh in verse 3. You're by nature, your natural posture and heart position is children of wrath, deserving condemnation and hell. You're children of hell in verse 3. That's what he's saying. That you are spiritually dead, you are spiritually dry bones, apart from God. See, this is a challenge because you're, leave, you're living biological, clinical life, but your spiritual life in you with Jesus is absolutely dead. And this is why it's a matter of time before you'll actually experience the vision of dry bones if you try to live without God. There's no identity as a child of God. There's no community in the family of God. There's no purpose without the mission of God. There's no comfort without the love of God. There's no hope without the resurrection of God and his son, Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering and you're experiencing and you're struggling, you're striving to have a more peaceful life, a vibrant life, a hopeful life, a life that the Bible calls the most joyful and freedom in life, the Bible calls that life in Christ. If you're wanting how to cultivate this, well, one is to realize maybe the picture of Ezekiel 37 is a picture of you. It's not just corpses, it's bones, not just bones, but dry bones. Not one set of bones, but an army of bones. Because that might be the bleak picture of actually who you are. You're sort of the walking dead, thinking you're doing life, but actually you're really so far from really what life has in store for you in the kingdom of God. And that's what you and I have to kind of discover. I mean, I'm going to elaborate on this, but let's move to point two. And if you have an ounce, if you have an openness to say, I might be like this. You know, maybe I'm doing well now, I kind of go back. If I might be like this, then how do you get out of this? Well, the catechism says the diligent use of the means of grace 
let's look at preaching. This is what the Bible says. This is what Ezekiel says. You want to get out of this? What gives life to the dry bones? No, well, it's preaching of the Word of God. How can you bring life and how can you bring revival? Now, you look at actually what God tells Ezekiel. Now, how can you raise the bones to life? How can you make them have restoration, resuscitation, life in, in a way that's fully free and joyful? How can you bring revival and renewal, give life back to his people in the church? Well, the answer is not a marketing strategy. It's not a promotion strategy. It's not an advertising strategy. And all those things are fine. That's not where the goal is. It's not an entertainment. I'm not trying to make things more fun. I'm not trying to indulge things and say that we've got to become more powerful or richer. That's not where to look for revival in your life either. And that's actually a tendency of what we do to find life with to money and power, entertainment and rest. All things which are absolutely fine. But fundamentally, if you want to have your dry bones rejuvenated, what Ezekiel and what God tells Ezekiel is this. Preach the word of God. It's the preaching of the word filled by the spirit of God and the prayers of the people that bring your dry bones to full of life. Because verse 4 says this, Then he said to me, Prophecy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And prophecy, that word, you know, it's not fortune telling, it's not future telling, it's really probably essentially means preach the word of God. Because God's word gives life, it gives resurrection, it gives resuscitation, it gives joy, it gives hope. It restores people, as we see in verses 12 to 14. And this is what Ezekiel exactly does. He gets his vision, and then he does this in his vision in verse 7 to 10. He says, well, God tells me to prophesy. I'm going to prophesy with the word. God tells me to ask the spirit, to, the wind to breathe into the bones and to the flesh. He asks the wind to kind of breathe into the bones and the flesh, and then there's life. That's what happens in verses 7 to 10. It was this two-stage process. He preached the word, and then he asked the wind, which is the same word of the Holy Spirit, do you know that word there for Holy Spirit or wind, the four winds? No, it's not Eastern mythology. That same word is back there in the creation account in Genesis 1, chapter 2. It's the wind, the Spirit of God that was hovering over the deep, that the Spirit of God could create the universe and the world that we live in. And, the, and Ezekiel is saying that very Spirit is what breathes life into recreating God's people again. It's the Spirit of God with the truth of God. The flesh and body came together. Now, sort of like a horror flick. The flesh and body come together. There's rattling of bones that reconstruct themselves. And then the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that created the world, now recreates the people of God with the Word of God. Now, as one pastor once said, the mind-informing work of the Bible always works hand-in-hand hand with the Spirit, heart-opening work of the Holy Spirit. They always work together. They always kind of speak into the lives of the people. That's why it can bring life. It can bring hope. As a great 17th century poet, George Herbert, once said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener because the gospel and the word of God brings up life from death because of the preaching of God's word. Friends, did you notice in this passage how God in this vision gives the bones new life through the preaching? Because what does he do? He doesn't snap his fingers. He doesn't wave his wand. Now, how does God want to bring life back here? Now, of course, he's sovereign. He could do whatever he wants. He could snap his fingers. He could make this voice a command. He could wave his magic hand. 
and he could bring revival and restoration to his church. But God doesn't want to do this. In his wisdom, what does he want to do? How, how does he want to bring revival to this church? Through the preaching of God's word. He says, okay, Ezekiel, of course, I could do this myself, but he doesn't bypass Ezekiel and the preaching. He says, Ezekiel, I want to use you. Give life to the dry bones. I'm going to be there with you. Preach and ask the Spirit to anoint your preaching. And that's the way it works for us too. Through the preaching, that's why there's a pastor here. That's why there's, there's going to be a pulpit committee. That's why you have to have the Word of God. That's why you have to people who are trained and gifted, and the church has to adjudicate all that to figure out that there's somebody that can come here and preach the Word of God. God's Word is what gives life, friends. You know, God's Word is what gives life. No one, David Strain once said this. I think it was David Strain. 33 different words in the Greek in the New Testament for talking about God's word. And sometimes these words about God's word are translated as preach or teach or proclaim or counsel. And there's all sorts of ways that these words are translated in the Bible. We have words like nutheo, which means to sit down with a friend and use God's words in counseling in their life. So counseling is absolutely biblical. We have words like lilane, which is mean to teach, is to talk about God's word in the normal daily life, such as discipleship. It's a dinner table type word, maybe. You've got to be talking about God's word at the dinner table is the point. And there are 33 words for how you could talk about God's word in the normal life in the New Testament. That's why all of God's ordinances God could use, but especially the preaching. But the point is, the word is powerful. There's so many different ways. There's counseling the Bible, there's teaching the Bible, there's talking about the Bible, there's discipling the Bible, community in the Bible, and the preaching of the Bible. And that's the hope for us here today, friends. You have dry bones here today? I'm not talking about the more mature and wiser members of our church. You know, sometimes you know, my bones are aching, but you have dry bones. And the only way you're going to get out of that to have restoration or revival or resuscitation of your spiritual life is actually through the Bible. In the preaching of God's word. You see, friends, this isn't, let me try to go a little bit deeper here. This is a hope for the church. Strong churches need strong pulpits. Strong people need strong preaching. That's the hope for life and healing. That's the hope that you guys have. And this is a, sort of a counseling point. If you feel weak and you need strength in your life, the question to ask is really verse 11. They say, we have no hope. Where is your hope here today? Now, I'm getting some of these notes here about what I'm going to share this actually from a different perspective to say that it's not just Christianity that wants hope, but humanity wants hope. Both different authors and perspectives say that really what gives life is people who have a transcendent gospel hope that comes through the Word of God. I got these notes from a professor of mine, Dr. Bill Edgar, and so this is a summary of some of his lectures, but let me just share this with you because I thought it was quite insightful as I looked at, his, at my notes again. Where do you find your hope? Well, for us, it's in Jesus Christ and the preached word, but understandably, our tendency is to go a different way. Now, there was a story years ago of a gang of laborers that was kind of crushing rock. They were digging holes in the street. And I think it was some sort of natural disaster or earthquake, and so these workers are trying to find a way to kind of channel water over to the neighborhoods and the, and the cities that needed water to kind of flow into their neighborhoods and the streets and the apartments and condos and houses that they live in. So you have a gang of laborers, and they're digging holes into the street. They had to blast through six inches of concrete with an air hammer, shovel out the rocks and sand, and they're trying to get five feet deep. It took about 45 minutes just to get six inches deep, and they dug the first five-foot hole, 
And then the foreman told them, okay, that's the wrong way to go. Fill it back up. They did this three times. This is about 15 hours. Until the workers go over to the foreman and they say at the break time, hey, boss, we're going to quit. This, this work is pointless. And the foreman asked, well, why? And the worker said, we're just made fools out here, like just crushing rock and filling the holes. It's pointless. Until the foreman says, really, really we're doing this is because we lost the records of the plumbing system. And we're trying to look for water mains so that we could channel water to people to give the people life. And what do the workers do? They went back to digging holes. Because the moral is this. You need a hope to kind of drive you to bring hope and purpose and happiness in life. The moral is that we need reasons to work to find our calling, meaning for our work, something to drive us beyond the task at hand. Now, many of you may have heard this Jewish psychologist, Viktor Frankl, and he's quoted in many different places. I read some articles. He was put in a concentration camp back in World War II. He was stripped of all his work, even his doctoral dissertation. But because he was a psychologist, when he was in the concentration camp, all these people came up to him to get some counseling, some help, mental health assessment. And he discussed with a few fellow inmates, and this is what he discovered, Viktor Frankl. He said those who were strong were not necessarily those who were people of high society and high placement in the culture, nor was it actually those people who were physically strong that made it through the concentration camp. It certainly wasn't the intellect and the brilliant philosophers. You know, in the concentration camp, he says, it's actually those who actually had a legitimate hope that survived, the hope that was nurtured through his counseling to help them to remember things about their lives, things that were worthwhile, memories that could never be stripped away. A new sense of priorities was developed in the atrocities of the concentration camp. He said the most consistent type of hope, however, was a religious hope. Because he reminds us that we need meaning and structure, hope, something to live beyond. Because he said those who had hope in money or in their job, in their power, in their position, well, when you're in the concentration camp, all of those foundations are stripped away. So the only thing you're left in the moment of nothing is to have your hope in placement, not only in the meaningful and the memories that you had in the past, but a hope that transcends something of your circumstances, the religious hope that only the preaching of the word of God can give. Now, the former president of Harvard, Derek Bach, once said this, when asked the question, what is the most consistently prevalent reality among college students today? Now, he was some decades ago. This is what his answer was decades ago. The most consistently prevalent reality among college students today. His answer, emptiness. Even at Harvard, they had a fundamental emptiness despite their prestige and promise. Michael Novak, in an essay called Keeping the Questions at Bay, this may be you and me, friends, says that modern life is too noisy and busy. Now, he starts with the description of this two-part philosophy that basically says about life, one, keep yourself surrounded by sound, two, always keep moving. This person is always driven by the next thing. And it's sobering for us to think that many of us have become like this, in our frenetic moving, in our business of life, trying to establish a hope and a transcendence of ourself, a peace and a hope in our lives. We're so busy moving to the next thing. Christians like you and me, sometimes we avoid life altogether through running and chasing after things that maybe don't really matter at the end of the day. 
yeah, it does matter in this life, but at the ultimate things, it may not really matter. We're so busy moving back and forth, trying to grasp after the next things, that the Bible is true. Like, if you try to grasp your life, you're going to end up losing it. It's those who lose their life who end up finding it. Well, what does that mean when Jesus says that? You lose your life because you can't create your life. You can't manufacture your life. You can't distill your life. You can't, cr- you can't determine your life individualistically. Because so if you pursue after all these aspirations, yeah, that's good and it's meaningful, but it's not going to give you life. It's when you kind of li- give up your life in terms of trying to create it yourself and to receive it in Jesus, in the preaching of God's word. That's when you'll find it. See, Ezekiel... It's exactly that. He's the channel through which God's power and hope came, a power and hope that transcended money and success and love, all these really good things, but that will give you an actual hope that can help you get through the difficult moments of your life. See, Ezekiel, when he preaches in chapter 37, he personally experienced this resurrection himself, spiritually speaking. He had a personal encounter with the Spirit. There's two times in Ezekiel where he was moved to his knees through like repentance and suffering, chapter 128 and chapter 323. And when he was moved to his knees, literally it was the Spirit of God that came into his life, raised him up to his feet. He experienced this resurrection. And that's exactly what happened to the dry bones. The Spirit entered them in verse 10, rising them to their feet. Because what happened to Ezekiel is what happened to the dry bones. Because Ezekiel is sort of the representative. Well, Ezekiel isn't our representative. Who's our representative? Who's our head? It's the true and greater prophet, Jesus Christ. See, what happened to Ezekiel happened to the dry bones. That's a picture of the gospel in New Testament. It's fully fleshed out, painted in 4D. What happens to Jesus happens to those who believe in Jesus. Now, Colossians 2.12 says it this way. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised, you you were also raised, and with him through faith in the power of the working of God who raised him from the dead. When Jesus died, we died with him. When Jesus raised, we were raised with him. What happened to Ezekiel happens to the dry bones. What happens to Jesus happens to the dry bones here today in these seeds. He raises us up. And how does that happen? Through the diligent use of the means of grace, the preaching of God's word. See, one way to think about this is that the reason that our dry bones can be full of life and to be restored is because Jesus, who was full of life on the cross, he became dry bones for you. Jesus became a skeleton for you so that we could be brought together, spiritually speaking, and in the resurrection, literally speaking. Because they will be spiritually, but also literally. When the day comes, when we pass away from this world, we will be buried as well, and our flesh, flesh will decay. And we will be bones, and we will be dry. And that's what really funerals really talk about. But if the life ends there, then all we have is memories. I don't know how hopeful that really is on some level. But George Herbert might be right. A death no longer is an executioner, but really a gardener. And when you and I are living and then dying and then resting in our dry bones, and be thankful that whatever happens to Jesus, when he died, it became dry bones for us on the cross, that we could be raised from the dead and experience the fullness of life in the gospel of Jesus. Now, that's a picture of verses 12 to 14. 12 to 14 in Ezekiel 37. Let me just read this as I close for the message. 
Ezekiel 37, verses 12 to 14, this is what he says. Therefore prophecy, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The fulfillment of this, how does he open up the graves? is when Jesus entered into it. How does he raise you up? When Jesus was raised three days later. See, the language here without going into 12 to 14 is so personal. Oh, my people. God is saying, I own you. I want to be with you. Oh, my people. I'm going to open up your graves. I'm going to restore you as my people. And you're going to know that I'm your Lord who loves you and gives my life for you, my son. This is a picture of what we have. We don't enter into the land of Canaan, as it says here. We enter the land of heaven. We have the fuller once for all resurrection of life because we are his people. And we're going to know on that one great day and hopefully a taste of it now that he is our Lord and that we're going to love him through and through. Friends, do you feel like dry bones here today? I've been trying everything to kind of get that life back, dieting and exercise, eating better, vacationing. And by the way, you should do all that. We celebrate that. But that's not going to give you the life. That won't raise dry bones. It's only going to be through the preaching of God's word as we look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. And we have the fullness of life in our union with him. Let's turn to the Lord and let's thank him for this life we have. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive that you have given us in your son, his death and resurrection and that he became dry bones on the cross for us so that in our dry bones and our sin and rebellion, our death that is total and complete, we may find life in him. Thank you so much, Lord, for just giving us your word. This means a grace that reminds us of who you are, the power that changes us slowly but surely as we look away from ourselves into Christ and that we could do this all because you allow us by your grace and power to worship you. Thank you so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.